This is Yehuda HaKohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. With me on the show today is Brigadier General Professor Aryeh Eldad, a former member of Knesset for the Echud Lumi Party and the former head of plastic surgery and burns at Hadassah in Kerem. And of course, the son of Dr. Yisrael Eldad, who served as the ideological leader for the Lechi, the Lochanechut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, during the struggle for freedom against British rule in this country. Uh, Professor Eldad, welcome to the show. Shalom and thank you very much. You just released a book, Ha'etzim v'hashvavim, Ha'perak Acharon Shelechi. First of all, um, I mean, Ha'perak Acharon Shelechi is the last chapter of Lechi, the last chapter of the fighters for the freedom of Israel. But can you explain Ha'etzim v'hashvavim to our listeners? Ha'etzim v'hashvavim, the logs and the splinters, or, or the small pieces that are left after you, you cut a log, Mm-hmm. Uh, is part of a, I think a communist say that uh, when you cut logs, there are splinters that are spread and uh, dispersed all over the place. Uh, which means that uh, if, you, if you run a revolution, even a justified revolution, you necessarily end up with doing some wrongs and some harm to innocent people. Mm-hmm. I guess it would be similar to the English saying, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Yes, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, it's an exact, exact similarity because you must break the egg in order to make an omelet. Mm-hmm. But uh, you may fool yourself that you can run a very, very clean and just revolution and do only the right thing and theoretically it, it's, it, it may happen but not practically in human history mm-hmm. right even the, the, the most uh, recognized as, as positive revolutions ended up sometimes in bloodbath of the people who participated in this revolution and um, just to mention the French revolution of course, the Russian Revolution. Right. So can you provide us with an overview of what this book is about, what you think the central message is, the central argument you're making about the last chapter of Lehi and how the revolution against the British led to harmful splinters? The story starts actually at uh, around 1947 when, uh, when the British... Uh, Empire tells the UN that uh, they no longer wish to control and run the mandate over Palestine and stay in Palestine. And they ask the UN to let them know what to do with it. They understood that neither the Arabs nor the Jews want them. So they, they ask the UN to let them know what to do, whom to handle this this miserable piece of land, uh, who to give it to. And the UN sends here a committee called UNSCOP, United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. And uh, uh, eventually they decided, they, they write the draft for the 181 resolution partition of Palestine that uh, uh, was adopted by 
the uh, General Assembly of, of the UN in November 29, 1947. But once the Brits decided they are, they are leaving, the raison d'etre, the, the reason of existence of the underground, of the fighters of freedom of Israel, disappeared. I mean, they fought only for one reason, to drive the Brits away from here, to liberate the land of Israel, and to create a Jewish state here. What a, a, a very ideological underground like Lehi, like the, the fighters for freedom of Israel, what will they do tomorrow morning? Should they carry on killing English and British soldiers and policemen in the streets and blow up uh, uh, headquarters and bridges and railroad? Or should they stop fighting them and uh, change the direction of the war against the Arabs because the Arabs announced openly that they are going to start a war and invade the land of Israel and eliminate the, the state if it will be declared. And in, in this point of time, the differences in, in the, in the uh, headquarter of, of Lehi really uh, uh, grew very clear for, for the first time. Between my father, Israel Shai Beldad and Nathan Yelin Moore. And my father went to the right and Yelin Moore went to the left. And they realized that uh, the common denominator of the time that they cooperated, and they cooperated wonderfully in, in the years of the, the existence of this underground, the, the common denominator was a war against the British imperialism. But my father's interpretation was a war against the British imperialism in Israel because they are a foreign ruler and we are the sovereign ruler of the land, the, the sovereign owner of this land. And we should fight any foreign ruler of, uh, in Israel, whether Turkish or Arab or British. For Yelling Moore, it was on a larger scope, a war against imperialism as such all over the world. And he thought, and he really believed, that uh, we may be partner with the Arabs because they also suffer from the British imperialism. They are also the victims of this imperialism. And uh, unfortunately, of course, this didn't happen. And uh, the motivation of the Arabs were not just a war against the imperialism, but war against the Jews in Israel. And they hated the British only when they defended or they they blamed the, the British that defended uh, the Jewish existence in Israel. So that were the cracks, the fair cracks in the headquarter of Lehi and, uh, and uh, this underground that was not monolithic at all, unlike the Irgun, that was right-wing revisionist uh, Beitar constitution, or Haganah that was Kibbutzim and... Mapaynikim, basically, or Mapamnikim. Yes, Mapay and Mapam. Uh, Lehi was with extreme Orthodox, and those they were named at that time Canadians, and communist, and nationalist, whatever. And even some Arabs. Or fighting the British Empire. 
Right. And the split wasn't just about right and left. The split was also about tactics. Do we create a political party or do we create an ideological movement, correct? Yes. And I think unlike the Irgun and the Haganah that put a lot of attention to the day after, mm-hmm. what shall we do when the British Empire is no longer here? What shape do we want for the state of Israel to have? Lehi didn't have a very clear vision for that. And they split on the, the, the debate. Uh, Yelin Moore and Yitzhak Shamir supported him at that time, at least in 1948. Mm. Right. They should create a left-wing socialist party in the Knesset and a party that will also fight for the whole land of Israel. And it wasn't a contradiction at that time, which right. was uh, accepted by them, of course. And my father thought that there's no, no place for another socialist party in Israel. He wanted an ideological movement around a paper, a, a magazine that he wrote named Sulam for the, the thinking of Malchut Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, the, the majority of uh, the people of Lehi went after Yelin Mor and Shamir, more than two-thirds of them. And they created the party that evaporated after less than a year. My father, with a small group of uh, people who, who remain loyal, faithful to him and his ideology, published this Sulam paper for 15 years or so. And I think even he had less than 1,000 copies a month. It has a, a, a meaningful impact on the thing in Israel at that time. Do you still have all the issues or access to most of the issues that he put out? Yes, I have all, all the issues, yes. And, and they are in the National Library and in the last year or so they are on the web. They are they online. Scan, where, where can people see them online? They digitized it and you can, you can even work on it when you can look for words and, and authors. So where can listeners go to see backdated issues of Sulam online? What website? You have to go to the site of the uh, National Library, Hebrew National Library, mm-hmm. uh, historic Jewish papers, write Sulam, Samech mm-hmm. Mem, and uh, you can read volume after volume. Okay, so that's exciting. You know, the way I understand this history is that, first of all, you mentioned before that your father and Yellen Moore were able to work very well for a certain period when they were fighting the British. And the way I understand it is that your father was very deeply committed to the aspirations of the Jewish people for thousands of years, meaning the things that we've been saying we wanted, the things we've been telling our children for generation after generation after generation from the time the Romans destroyed us until we came home. But Yellen Moore was really a political genius, at least in terms of foreign policy. And I even remember once when, when I worked with you, when you were in the Knesset, you mentioned something to me. You said that every bullet that was fired and every bomb that exploded was planned exactly based on how every relevant group would react. And you told me that that was Yellen Moore, that that was Yellen Moore who really understood the strategy 
of the fight against the British in order to move the Jewish community closer to the war, move the Etzel closer to the war, move the British into positions of oppressing the broader community more, even to the point where we had the Arabs in Egypt protesting for the freedom of Eliyahu Batsuri and Eliyahu Hakim after they assassinated Lord Moyne. Yes, that's true. They were, after, after Yair Avraham Stern was uh, murdered, uh, there wasn't one commander of Lehi, there were uh, a center, they called themselves mm-hmm. a center of three, Yelimor, Yitzhak Shamir, and my father. At any given moment, usually there were only two because one of them was in prison. But uh, mm-hmm. Yelimor was, generally speaking, in charge of the political side of the underground. Shamir was in charge of the operation and organizational side of the Lehi. And my father was the ideologist. And he was uh, trying to interpret and, and explain the, the very concentrated ideology that Yair put in words. And uh, for Yelling Moore, or for a lot of uh, actual fighters in this underground, there was a gap between the high ideology and the actual acting. In order to shoot a British policeman in the street, you don't have to decide whether later you are going to build the third temple or not. So my father was trying to inherit the ideology, but uh, if, if you look at the results of the, the vote or the split at the end of the days of the underground, most of the, the fighters didn't accept his ideology. They, they, it was too high or too complicated or too abstract for them. They wanted to fight the British and drive them away from here. And they didn't really bother with the, the deep roots of it. Therefore, my father thought he needs a spiritual and a theoretical movement that will deepen the roots of the people to, to educate them better about the implication of their history and the philosophy and the Bible and uh, the tradition and the culture of the Jewish people and what, what it has to do with our lives here. Do you see any institutions today taking up that work? Do you see any organizations or institutions in the state of Israel or in the diaspora taking up such an educational role? I think um, the, the, w- what happens with the, the, the Zionist religion groups in Israel in the last uh, 40 or 50 years, that's a, a real revolution with, with real deep roots because they didn't have to teach these roots from the beginning. People who mm-hmm. grow into the paths of the Jewish faith and study the Bible and the Gemara and the Talmud and the Midrashim. And they knew not only the, the text, but the meaning of the, this text to our lives here. It was easier for them to create schools of thinking on these directions. So they didn't have to start from zero. You're speaking of the students of Rav Kook primarily. Yes. And uh, Gush Emunim, which I agree was a revolutionary movement. They really did advance Israel's liberation forward. Yes, that's true. But you're saying your father was dealing within a different context. Your father was working and educating within a much different context from Rav Tziuda Cohen Cook. His uh, starting point was not a religious starting point. 
He was a scholar of uh, the age of Haskalah, education in the Jewish people at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, he was a philosopher. And uh, he thought, he hoped that it will be easier for him to speak to the secular uh, people of Israel. Eventually, he discovered that most of his students and followers belong to the religious uh, group and not, as we have in Israel, less and less left-wing believers in the land of Israel. It was quite natural for the socialists in the time of uh, Itzhak Tabenkin and his followers 50 years ago to be uh, socialist and to believe in the land of Israel and our right over the land of Israel. It's very hard to find these people on the left of our political map in Israel nowadays. So mm-hmm. he eventually preached to the choir, to those who already believed in our right, and uh, he widened and deepened their mm-hmm. general roots, not necessarily the Jewish roots. And I'm sure they had uh, an appreciation for him and his teachings and even his own life's work in terms of getting them to the point where they became relevant. Because in the time of the underground, the national religious were not a revolutionary force, uh, the opposite. No, they were the contra-revolutionary. Mm-hmm. They were those who slowed it down, the, who, who represented Mizrahi in the government. Some of them uh, hesitated when they had to vote for or against the declaration of the state of Israel. They weren't uh, very active at that time. Right. So in, in some ways, we can say that the national religious community caught up to people like your father. Yes. Yes. And uh, I know that some of them asked permission from the rabbis to leave the yeshiva and go listen to his lectures. And they didn't always get a permission. But mm. in some yeshivot, yes. Merkaz Arab, yes. They allowed them to go to the Hebrew University on Wednesday lunchtime for his famous debate with Leibovic. Right, right. I think there's some videos where you see Merkaz students in the audience asking yes. questions. And so growing up, I'm sure your father introduced you to people like uh, Uri Tzvi Greenberg. And I'm sure you've had a lot of interaction with Uri Tzvi. And for me, part of this return of the Jewish people to our land uh, involves also the return of our culture and the return of our values and uh, the return of nivoah, the return of prophecy. And Uri Tzvi might be the closest thing we've seen so far in the modern age to a biblical prophet. Would you agree with that or no? I wouldn't say he was close to a biblical prophet. I believe he was a prophet. I believe he was a prophet. So what is that like, interacting with a prophet? Uh, very difficult. Very difficult. He wasn't an easy man at all. And I guess Yirmiyahu wasn't an easy man at all. But if I think of a prophet, I think of Uri Tzvi. I uh, grew up uh, knowing him, knowing his uh, family. I uh, make Kiddush every, every Shabbat uh, on a wine cup that he gave us to our wedding. He was a witness wow. in our wedding. And his father... Uh, married my parents. So we, we inherited this prophet in our family. It's the family prophet. But uh, uh, I read his poetry and his text and uh, I try to teach him 
I really uh, am deeply sorry how unknown to the white public Uritzvi is. I know that uh, poets of much lesser degree and quality are more famous because people could sing the poems and songs, but you, you really can't compose uh, Uritzvi Greenberg. So uh, he is left... Uh, even though he was recognized and got the prize of Israel and, and scholars study his poetry, he is quite unknown for the, the, the white public. And uh, I try wherever I can teach his poetry, give 10 or 8 lessons, uh, keys to, to his poetry, as I learned from my father. I studied Uitzvi from my father's lecture, a few years ago with my daughter Carney, we published in Shoken uh, Publishing House uh, a book called Dam Vedema Noga Vesahav, uh, lectures in, in uh, the, the poetry of uh, Uri Tzvi Grinberg, following the text of, of these lectures of my father. So I, I uh, give these lessons in Mechinot, in Midrashot, uh, wherever I can, because I want people to, to, to know him and to understand that uh, we live in such an era that uh, the prophecy evoked again. And to this day, you would say Uri Tzvi is the only prophet you've met in your life? Yes, yes. Uh, we, are, we are lucky to have one. Uh, we, don't, we don't want an inflation of prophets, otherwise you, you, you wouldn't know whom to believe. We had one. And, uh, that, that's interesting because when Eldad and Medad were prophesying in the camp and Yoshua wanted to lock them up, Moshe's response is that he wants all of Am Yisrael to become Nevi'im, that we should all become prophets. Moshe was very nice. He was trying. Very generous. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't think he really meant it. That's interesting. The, the way I understood that was that if the nation doesn't achieve a minimal level of nivuah, meaning there's levels, even the Rambam in Mor Nevochim talks about 11 different levels of nivuah, and he actually defines the first level as, as just gvura, like physical gvura, like Yiftach and Shimshon. Like that's their nivuah, to go out and kill X number of plishtim or Amonim or whatever. And the way I understood this is that Moshe is teaching us that if the nation doesn't achieve a minimal level of nevuah, we won't be able to understand the greater nevi'im. Like the only way that a Yirmiyahu is understood is if the nation is sensitive to the things he's sensitive to, even if we're not on his level of, of nevuah. So yes, it could be also... If, uh, if gvurah is the first level, we, we are very fortunate and we had many. And, uh, but but uh, w when we speak on not on the Rambam uh, understanding of this term, but on the everyday understanding. I mean, Nevin are those in the Bible, not, mm -hmm. not uh, these crazy people in the streets who talk to themselves. Uh, by the way, there were many of them when I was a child. Recently, it is no longer a way to differentiate a madman and a sane because uh, all the people talk to themselves when they walk on the street uh, and, and they use this little apparat called cell phone. But uh, when uh, I was a kid, we didn't have any. And, and whenever we saw somebody talk to himself in the street, 
he was declared as a madman immediately. Uh-huh. We think of Nevi'im as, as those who, who their prophecies were put in the Bible. We had one like them in, in our time, and that's Uri Tzvi. A lot of our listeners might be unfamiliar with Uri Tzvi. Is there anything you can share, either a story or an interaction you had with him or an historical event that might illustrate either his being a prophet or just him being a difficult man, as you said? The easiest aspect to, to analyze is his ability to see the future. Not mm-hmm. only describe uh, the sequence of events, but actually to see it. He, he could uh, uh, write about the German Air Force bombing London seven or eight years before it, the Blitz actually happened. And he could see the, the massacre of millions of Jews in Europe with gas, all the fields of Europe filled with ashes of Jews and the earth, the actual land in, in Europe filled with bones of Jews. He wrote it in 1922. So that's one aspect. He could see the future, but what really made him a prophet wasn't the ability to analyze from what he could see, to read the newspaper, to hear the radio, and to understand from, from this what's going to happen. He was a prophet in, in the sense of dictating his people what they should do from the political and the moral and the historic and the ideological point of view. He actually not only described for them in detail what is going to happen, but he also ordered them what to do in order to prevent it or to change it or to intervene in the sequence of events of history. That's, That's a prophet. So we're talking about a man who is able to see reality in a more naked fashion, see deeper levels of reality and therefore know, similar maybe to a scientist who understands the way a sequence of events may lead to a certain outcome and what can be done to influence the outcome. My father told me one story, I think it's in his book about his years in the underground. And he he said that uh, in September 3rd, 1939, Two days after the Second World War broke, he was sitting with Menachem Begin and the leadership of uh, Beitar in Warsaw. They were working in a paper called Der Moment, The Moment, mm-hmm. uh, that was published something like 800,000 copies a day. Yiddish, wow. Yiddish newspaper of the, the Revisionist Party. Uritzvi Greenberg was the editor, my father was the editor of the literature section, and Begin was the head of Beitar in Poland at that time, and Begin uh, uh, gave orders for the Beitaris to go out and dig trenches in Warsaw in order to help the Polish army fight against the German army that invaded. And my father described that Uritzvi just burst into the room shouted at all of them, what are you doing here, fools? Went to the map, map of Poland on the wall, showed them the river Bug, and said, the Germans will come from west and they will reach the river Bug. 
the Russian will come from east and they will reach the river book that will be the border. Run away. Run away to the to east, to the eastern side. As if he had a the copy of the sacred part of the Riventrop Molotov Agreement. I never asked him how did he know, but for him he read the papers. He didn't have any secret sources. And he but, was already a Palestinian. He was a citizen of uh, Palestine, Eretz Israel at that time. So he managed to escape through the Romanian border and reach Israel. For Begin, it took uh, three years. For my father, it took two years. And eventually they arrived in a very convoluted way. But uh, he was able to alarm them immediately to leave. Listeners who are interested in Dr. Israel Eldad's memoirs of the underground period should check out the first tithe. Uh, should be available online. In Hebrew, of course, it's Maser Rishon, if anybody's interested in, in reading the book. So getting back to the split in Lehi, you say there were different visions. There was a vision of Yellen Moore and two-thirds of the underground, and then there was the vision of your father and one-third. Your father and Yellen Moore were two powerful forces, I'd say, within the Jewish people. When working together, we're able to accomplish great things and really advance our history forward. Uh, but separately, at least on the surface, it doesn't appear that either had a major impact on Israeli society, that both were essentially promoting political messages and social messages that weren't understood by the majority of people. Would you say that's correct? Yes, it is correct. Yelin Moore was considered far left, and my father spoke about Manchut Israel, which is um, not a taboo, but <laughs> nobody pay attention. And there was never really any efforts to bring them back together before Yelin Moore passed. My father didn't, didn't speak to him at all after Yelin Moore denied that uh, the whole three of them decided on the killing of Bernadotte. Mm-hmm. When uh, uh, Yelimo, in his trial, when he was the only one of the three that was caught by the, the police, the Israeli police at the time, and put to trial, and he uh, denied any connection with, with it. But even later, in a four-hour meeting in a closed room, uh, Yelimo told my father, I don't remember that we decided on Bernadotte. And my father stood up, left the room, and since that day, he didn't speak to Yelimo. Bernadotte being the UN mediator who came to internationalize Jerusalem during the 48 war. And he, he actually advocated the ending of the partition of Palestine, the 181 resolution, and create a Jewish and Arab cantons that he really hoped that he will be the, the high commissioner to supervise the, the coexistence of these cantons together. He wanted to sit in the, the palace of the, the British High Commissioner in South Jerusalem, but uh, Lehi decided to kill him before he will bring his, uh, his uh, draft to the UN. The State of Israel was very young at the time, two, three, four months, and uh, the support of the international community was not very secured at that time. And people thought, well, the war is too much and we have a lot of refugees and a lot of people were killed. Maybe we should embark on a different plan. And uh, um, not only uh, Lehi uh, wanted 
to put an end to his plan, but also Ben-Gurion and Shertok was the Minister of Foreign Affairs at, at that time, and they attacked uh, Bernadotte's plan publicly the day before his uh, assassination, and uh, they were afraid that they would be accused of uh, uh, being behind uh, this uh, action. But uh, Ben-Gurion was very, very sure that Bernadotte uh, acts here as a messenger of the British intelligence service, not uh, on his own, and wants to bring the, the Brits back in, through the back door, through an international supervision of, of Israel. Ben-Gurion believed that. Yes, yes, even Ben-Gurion believed that. And Ben-Gurion knew exactly who killed, uh, who killed Bernadotte. The names were given to him, you can read it in his diary, very, very early by the, the head of the intelligence services. The, well, didn't Yoshua Cohen become Ben-Gurion's bodyguard later in life? Yes, a very close friend and bodyguard. And of course, Ben-Gurion knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. I imagine that you also had the opportunities to meet with people like Shabtai Bendov, learn from Shabtai Bendov over the years. I met Shabtai Bendov. I wouldn't be able to say I learned from him. It was too deep for me. Yeah. I mean, he, my father appreciated him very much. He said Shabtai Bendov is very deep. When my father said very deep, he said, I don't understand. Wow. I know that uh, Bendov was constantly trying to push the state of Israel to become, you know, not just the British mandate with Jewish decorations, but to actually go through, I guess, what we can call a decolonization process after independence was achieved, where we would start to really define what kind of structures and systems and policies and institutions make a state deeply Jewish including our justice system, for example. I know that for a while he worked in the justice system. And I, I for some reason, had assumed that Bendov was just part of the Chug Sulam, that he was just he part was, of your father's he group. He was an essential part of Chug Sulam. He published all his first papers in Sulam uh, as a sequence of articles. Geulat Israel b'mashber amdina, I remember the... the but uh, um, I, I'm a plastic surgeon. I'm not even an internist. Internist in medicine speaks a lot. I uh, choose this wing of uh, medicine that speaks very little and cut a lot. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bendov was too complicated for me. I'm only a surgeon. If, okay. And so here we are over 70 years in, Jewish independence. How do you think your father and some of his comrades from the Lechi would look at the state today if they were here? My father, oh, I, I know exactly how he would look at it. Whenever he, he was in a group of people who were complaining against the state of Israel, how corrupt it is, how materialistic and not spiritual enough, he told me several times the two verbs in the Bible, Matovu Alecha Yaakov and Amnaval Velochacham. How good are your tents, Israel? Is a sentence said by Bilam, mm-hmm. not even a Jew. He was called a villain, Rasha. And Amnaval uh, Velochacham, an unwise and villain uh, nation. Moshe Rabbeinu said so. How come? 
And my father told me it's only uh, a question of perspective. Bilam looked at the people of Israel from far away, from top of mountains. He had a perspective. He saw a, a nation of slaves coming out of slavery in Egypt, going to Sinai, getting the Torah, and are on their way to conquer their ancient homeland. And Moshe Rabbeinu was living in the tents among the intrigues, the combines, the, the corruption, the people who really complained all the time. They wanted to go back to Egypt. It was better than, than to, to die in the desert. Therefore, whenever he could hear people complain and, and uh, really uh, pessimistic, he told me, take a step backward, have a better perspective and see where we were hundreds of years ago and what we are here now in the land of Israel with seven million Jews, with industry and agriculture and science and Torah. And he, he was very optimistic. As we should be. Like that is the perspective to understand where we are within the broader scope of our people's history and to see how the nation is maturing and the nation is developing despite all the problems. So, Professor Eldad, what's next for you? You just published this book. What's next on your agenda? I broadcast every day on uh, 103 radio station with uh, Ben Kaspit. I have a weekly column at Mariv, and I'm, uh, I think I'm working on my next book, which is too early to tell what it will be about, but uh, I'm, I'm already gathering material. Okay, and if there's one central message that you hope readers will take away from this book, what is that? I think uh, we shouldn't look for perfection in revolution. Mm -hmm. We have to try to assess the general goal, the justification of the revolution itself, and accept that even the most rightful revolution, people are paying uh, very, very dearly in, in lives of people who weren't, weren't to be blamed at all. But uh, we need a wider scope, we need a wider perspective to assess the importance of uh, this revolution, uh, not from the difficult days or the bloody days that uh, uh, those who fought uh, in the actual war of this revolution had to, to suffer and to endure, but uh, to remember that what was the contribution of it to the Jewish revolution in, in our time. Uh, that we should focus less on the individual pieces and more on the collective, more on the bigger story, more on how history is advancing. Yes, that's true. Okay, Professor Ariel Dad, thank you so much for joining me. Shalom and thank you very much. This is Yudaha Kohen from the Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, Brit Chazon, and check out our show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 31.